0: That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you.
1: My name is Sarah Kim, and I'm from Austin, Texas. I'm a Cheeselandian because while life is great, cheese makes it better. Go to cheeselandia.com to learn more. And if it's for you, sign up. This week on Meat and 3, we head into the second part of our mini-series on global trade, where we talk about all things sweet, from chocolate and sugarcane to the cultural festival that accompanied the growth of the date industry in the U.S. They're using this romance and fantasy to say dates are exotic and you should consume them.
0: I like to think of the food that we eat as archaeological artifacts, in part because the history of humanity is in the stands in your produce market.
2: It's not like other foods. We have very like personal
1: feelings about chocolate. Tune in to Meet and Three, HRN's weekly food news roundup wherever you get your podcasts.
2: This is What Doesn't Kill You Food Industry Insights. I'm your host, Katie Kiefer. And today, we are going to be talking about the new federal dietary guidelines. And my guest is Greta Moran. She is an independent journalist who writes for The Atlantic, Grist, Pacific Standard, The Guardian, Teen Vogue, uh, The New Republic, Quartz, Civil Eats, which is where I read this story... The Cut, Popular Science in New Yorker Online and Elsewhere. My God, girl. And her January 28th article in Civil Eats on the new dietary guidelines um, is what brings her here today. So welcome to the show. And thanks so much for joining me. And thanks for letting me postpone in fear of the power outage that never came. But you know, if I had not postponed, I would have had an outage. No question. It's just axiomatic. uh
3: um That's I mean fun. I'm all about safety first so I'm glad we postponed
2: um, <laughs> excellent so anyway so you wrote this fantastic article I mean I literally finished the article and I was like okay I gotta find this girl because we're talking <laughs> um and in fact five years ago I interviewed Marian Nessel about the dietary guidelines oh, um please. so I it's something I do pay attention to so I thought your story was really thoughtful and brought up some of the many conflicts of interest that I think the American public needs to be aware of um, in these in how these dietary guidelines are issued. So let's start by saying, um, well, first of all, let's start why let's start with a quick review of why they actually matter, because very few Americans, in fact, consciously follow any dietary guidelines, as we know. So why, why are they so important?
3: Yeah, um, well, first, thank you so much for having me on. Um, and I'm super honored to be among like, your amazing <laughs> roster of people on the show.
2: Um, oh, thank you. That's so kind of you.
3: Um, yeah, and then as far as, as, as why they matter, um, so they're the only federal guidelines on nutrition, um, and they've been around since 1980, so that's itself is a, a big deal. Mm-hmm. Um, but then they're also used in an array of federal food assistance programs, so the National School Lunch Program and SNAP benefits, um, the Elderly Nutrition Program and the Indian Reservation and Supplemental Nutrition Program. Um, and then beyond those programs they're used by educators and policymakers, um, other professionals. Um, and you know I, I know most people don't go around to the grocery store like with these guidelines in their back pocket, but they are so they are they are pretty influential in I think how we think about food um, because they are such a primary tool used by educators. Um,
2: So would you say like registered dietitians, for example, would be the kind of person who would be pumping this information out to whatever constituency that they work with for just for an example of an educator, would that be the kind of population you're talking about?
3: Definitely, definitely. And I think there's some dietitians that I probably carve out their own route, but I do think it's like foundational to nutrition education.
2: Right. And this is just for people who aren't completely familiar with this. This is, you know, when you see uh, folks, when you see the the my plate, it used to be the food pyramid. And now you see the my plate um, graphic that has been developed that, you know, shows you like you should eat, you know, this percentage of meat and this percentage of grains and this percentage of fruits and vegetables. So they really do have, I think, I mean, even a subtle influence on Americans, uh, despite our our eschewing of any sort of, (laughs) you know, I'd say 70 percent of the population is not particularly conscious um, of the importance of some of these guidelines. Um, and, and that's why your article really struck me, was because uh, the importance of these guidelines um, you know, is, is influenced uh, by a variety of factors. But before we get into that, I want, it, I want you to explain how the guidelines are, are established, who writes them. And who sets the research agenda um, to develop, you know, that that decides what questions they're going to address when they they start developing new guidelines every five years?
3: Yeah. Um, So they are written by the Department of Health and Human Services and USDA. Um, But before that, the first step in the process is there is a scientific advisory committee that um, provides a report Um, that acts as recommendations for the final guidelines. Um, And then after those recommendations come out, uh, the USDA and Department of Health and Human Services write the final guidelines. Um, And then they also, um, this year for the first time, the Department of Health and Human Services and USDA also set the scope of the research agenda. So they came up with 80 questions that then the Scientific Advisory Committee explored. So that was unique to this year. Um, and then also um in 2000 up until 2005, that scientific advisory committee also wrote the final guidelines. Um, so you see over time the agencies have
2: had more influence over the guidelines. How interesting. So in 2005 that would have been the second Bush administration. Um now I'm trying to remember who the secretary of agriculture was at the time. I've Blanked on it, but anyway, I was doing the show. Was I doing the show? No, I wasn't doing the show. So no wonder I'm blanking on it because I didn't start <laughs> doing this show until t- uh, 2010. So it's only been 11 years, and I wasn't really paying attention the way I do now. Um, let's talk a little bit about some of the vulnerabilities of the scientific committee selection process um, to corporate influences. That that seemed mm-hmm. that really struck me in your article.
3: Yeah, yeah, that was interesting. So that was something that I spoke with. Um Ashka Naik at Corporate Accountability, um, their research advocacy group, um, and she, uh, she said that the process is really vulnerable to corporate influence at, at every step of the way, um, beginning with the nomination process. Um, and then and in that nomination process, trade groups and industry groups are able to nominate the participants to the scientific advisory committee. Has that always been the case? I believe so. Uh, ah, okay. Interesting. Um, I may have to. I, I'm not. I may have to follow up on that one actually. Um, okay. But I, I Fair believe enough. so. Um, and this year, nine out of the twenty participants were nominated by the food and beverage industry. Yeah. Um, and then seventy-five percent had ties to the food and beverage beverage industry, and that that's research by Corporate Accountability.
2: Aha, uh-huh. fascinating. So. Um, you mentioned in the new guidelines um, that for the very first time, the entire human life cycle from infants to the elderly is um, is included in or was included in the research questions that they I guess that they introduced and and have they've come up with new guidelines regarding both what infants should be eating, I guess, and what the elderly should be eating. But mm-hmm. so explain how that extends the reach of corporate influence.
3: Yeah, so um I wasn't aware, at least based on my conversations, of any industry influence um, when it comes to those life, the the new life phases that have been added. Mm-hmm. Um, but it does extend the potential for industry influence in the future, um, and it just, you know, it means these guidelines affect us throughout our entire lives.
2: Um, so that's significant. Yes, it is. Absolutely. <laughs> well, and also, I mean, it seems to be like if, say, for example, now I know there isn't as much of a, um, as much of a, an, uh, a push on the part of, uh, certain food industry players to say, for example, um, you know, recommend that women use formula rather than breastfeeding their babies. But that's one area where you could see some significant uh, corporate interest being um, aligned with the idea of, of discouraging breastfeeding, particularly in developing nations. And I think we know that this is true uh, from other studies that have shown that um, you know the the, the extent of, of breastfeeding being discouraged stems from really the very beginning of formula, which I guess was, I was fed on formula. So um, that was happening in the fifties. I think that's when formula began to really take off. I'm a boomer. So, um, and I know that for many, many years, not until the seventies was breastfeeding once again, something that uh, you know women began to explore for themselves and to embrace and then soon after that came all of these huge studies saying that breastfeeding was absolutely the best thing for you but when it comes to old people um who who's going to benefit from that the the people who make ensure <laughs> <laughs> yeah that's a that's a good question um
3: yeah i uh that's curious i mean there is the these guidelines do affect the elderly nutrition program. So there's a lot of potential foods there that it could impact. Um, It is, but I mean, I'm
2: just wondering what that is, you know, I I don't expect you to know that, but it is interesting. Like once, you know, when, when it really is a full human life cycle that there's, Mm -hmm. you know, and where, where are they insinuating themselves, um, you know, in other places, obviously Mm -hmm. you can tell that I don't have a very strong sense of, um, Appreciation for the food industry, shall we yeah. say? You know, I mean, they they do their job brilliantly, mm-hmm. but somehow we're all getting sick. So it's not that brilliant, <laughs> obviously. So one of the things yeah. that were was that really struck me in your article was that the the recommendations on sugar intake and alcohol consumption um, mm-hmm. were basically unchanged. Curiously enough, uh, what happened there?
3: Yeah. um, So the Scientific Advisory Committee um, came up with um, they came up they I mean they wrote this really extensive 835 page report and um, within that report there are two two key recommendations around sugar and alcohol consumption Um, for alcohol consumption they recommended that um, men limit their intake to one drink per uh, one alcoholic drink per day. Um, And in previous um, guidelines, it was two per day. Um, And then they also recommended that um, sugars be um, 6% rather than um, the previous guideline of 10% of one's daily calories. Um, So that was based on, you know, an extensive report, um, a pretty rigorous scientific process, according to... Um, Sarah Reinhardt at Union of Concerned Scientists, and um, it didn't make it into the final guidelines. And so that that was a really, um, one of the more blatant areas of potential ind- industry influence. For sure. Um,
2: so in other words, yeah. these recommendations to reduce your alcohol consumption for, to one a day for men and to reduce your sugar consumption from 10 to 6, these were just recommendations. So they didn't actually... Wind up as part of the federal gui- dietary guidelines, and you can see how those those two those two regu- those two suggestions in and of themselves would conceivably have represented um, you know loss of revenue for those industries, and so I, I thought that was a very clear example yeah. of where those lobbies um, you know had some significant impact. Uh, When it came to how the USDA and Health and Human Services, both government agencies, ended up writing the guidelines. Because, again, let's go Mm -hmm. back to the fact that in the past, the scientists wrote the guidelines. And then in the last Mm -hmm. 15 years, that has moved. Uh, Now, when was Citizens United, Greta? Do you remember that? Do you remember when that was passed? Um, That was not
3: long after that, I don't think. Yeah, you're right. It does seem like a really aligned timeline.
2: Let's see. Yeah, look it up. <laughs> I'll just keep talking. No, but I, I feel like, you know, that was a moment because when Citizens United passed and, mm-hmm. you know, lobbies were able to basically pump as much money as they wanted to uh, into whatever, you know, candidate uh, they felt like or whatever congressman or senator, senator whatever. Um, it seems like that was a moment when, when this kind of dark money as my own state senator um, or my own national senator, excuse me, uh, you know, Senator Sheldon Whitehouse uh, calls dark money always going on about dark money and, yeah. and quite rightly so. And I feel like that, that, you know, th- this is a clear example of of a place where dark money may have had some influence on the, on the two agencies, government agencies that were required to write these guidelines. So anyway, we're, I'm going to move us on from that. But um, if you happen to take a, you know, see that just, you know, sing out in a minute or so, but let's move on to, now, there was another question that I thought was interesting Um, And you corrected me that, you know, in the past five years ago, when they were doing the guidelines, there were some very interesting um, suggestions. For example, the guidelines suggested that a plant-based diet might be better. That didn't come anywhere near this particular set of guidelines. Mm -hmm. And then also there were questions five years ago about how much meat you should eat, how much salt you should eat, um, you know, questions about ultra processed foods. And you pointed out to me that those, those were not even addressed. What Mm -hmm. happened there? Yeah. So
3: um, for for this year, um, for the first time, the agencies, Health and Human Services and the USDA um, determined the scope of the guidelines. Um, And so they excluded red and processed meat, salt consumption, ultra processed food, um, sustainability, climate change, all social issues, race. Those are all um, not within the, they came up with 80 questions for the advisory committee to explore. And those those issues were all not part of it. Um, and then even before then, um, in uh, 2015, when there was, um, as you're saying, a lot of conversation around um, plant-based diets, and um, for the first time, the, the advisory committee recommended um, a plant-based diet because of because it's more sustainable. Um, and they linked, um, meat consumption to greenhouse gas emissions for the first time. So that was really significant, but then that ultimately didn't make it into those final guidelines, um, because the agencies, um, determined that it was outside of the scope after the meat industry, um, really extensively lobbied against, against that. And, um, and then in 2000. Just a, a couple months later, um, in 2016, um, the scope was more formally limited um, in a, a
2: in a, a bill. Um, really? So, yeah. Literally in a bill that was passed,
3: saying yeah, we um, can't
2: that dietary guidelines should not be including issues of sustainability or, um, you know, or I don't know, racial questions around diet and how diet has an impact on the health and well-being of, you know, Black, Indigenous, people of color, which, of course, we've seen, you know, writ large in the COVID epidemic. Um, Yeah. And it didn't explicitly say that, but it did limit the guidelines
3: to, it was uh, an agriculture appropriations bill. It limited the guidelines to just um, nutrition and dietary science. So the way that has been then applied is by excluding all of those other
2: really important issues. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it comes back to the, to, you know, my interview with Mark Bittman, which, you know, got an incredible amount of, you know, I've been doing this show for 11 years and like everybody just went crazy over this interview. I'm like, why? I mean, what? You know, good book, but um, but one of the things that I really drilled down on with Bittman was this kind of really old notion that dates all the way back to the 17th century um, of, of sort of compartmentalizing or, or reductive thinking of like just breaking things down. So that everything is instead of being a holistic representation of how food and, and the planet and the people are all supposed to work together, we're we're going to break it all down into these little individual components. Um, and, and I think this this is a perfect example of that um, that very outdated uh, form of thinking being applied to 21st century um, recommendations about, <laughs> you know, how we're supposed to take care of ourselves. Um, but let's talk for a second about um, the the public commenting process on the guidelines, because there is a process for that. Mm-hmm. And those those comments come from
3: whom? Where, where do they come from? So they come. The the majority comes from industry groups, um, and then, but then also, any anyone is able to submit a public comment. Um, Even citizens can submit a public comment if they want to. Um, And there were um, so there was a comment period um, on the draft conclusions of the guidelines. I mean, of the um, sorry, of the advisory committee. Um, And then after that advisory committee came out with their recommendations, there was another comment period. Um, And in the initial comment period, the group uh, corporate accountability found that 70% of the comments came from industry (laughs) groups. So it's it's pretty staggering. Surprise! Yeah, it's a lot. Um, And then one thing that I found interesting was in the oral comments, um, which took place on August 11th, um, there was a representative from the Distilled Spirits Council and then another representative from the Beer Institute, and they both made a really similar argument saying that there wasn't a Preponderance of evidence to support the alcohol recommendations, and then and that it was going against the advisory committee's charter to make (laughs) scientific-based recommendations. And then the very next day, um, we had twenty-seven members of Congress send a letter to the USDA and HHS secretaries, you know, using the same argument using this, the same phrase, preponderance of evidence and, and making the same argument around the committee's
2: charter. So I thought that was pretty striking. Yes. So you're saying, let me just see if I get this right. So you're saying that 27 members of Congress in addition, so this, this who, who gave the first, who gave the initial comment that about, uh, you know, who was the first person who, who suggested that this should be outside of the scope of this? And then it was echoed by these 27 congressmen. Let me just get that drilled down on that for a second.
3: Yeah, I don't know who exactly was the... F- I, think, I think a lot of industry groups were making sort of a similar argument, but definitely um, the Distilled Spirits Council and Beer Institute. I see. So they said
2: it first, and then mm-hmm. a day later, HHS and the USDA get a letter from 20, signed by 27 congressional representatives. Mm-hmm. Were they all Republican or was it a bipartisan... Uh,
3: It was a bipartisan anti-scientific effort. Uh
2: (laughs) (laughs) Uh-huh. Which just goes to show you (laughs) that dark money finds its way pretty much everywhere, doesn't it? It's it's true. Oh, yeah, Yeah. it is. I mean, I, I like to think of Democrats as squeaky clean, but of course they're not. It's, you know, it is an inherently corrupt... Uh, profession at this point. And I guess it always has been. So, um, you know, it's unfortunate, but it, it, you know, everybody is getting too much money from too many groups. And this is where this Citizens United thing has got to be overturned. Um, We're going to take a short break now for a sponsor drop and we'll be right back with Greta Moran. We're going to be talking more about the federal dietary guidelines recently issued um, just this past month. Thanks for tuning in. We'll be right back.
1: My name is Sarah Kim and I'm from Austin, Texas. I'm a landian because while life is great, cheese makes it better. Wisconsin cheese has proven time and time again to be a delicious expression of craft, hard work, and tradition. As a landian, I'm able to share a Gouda experience with fellow cheese and food lovers nationwide, as well as connect with cheese producers and cheesemongers, taking my love of cheese to another level. I invite you to join Cheeselandia because during these difficult times, it has been even more important to take it easy and get cheesy. The Cheeselandia community and events have been the glue helping to keep us together and connected, and I would love it if you would join me. And let's face it, if you hear the word cheese and get a little hungry, then you've found a place you can call home. To find out more about Cheeselandia, go to Cheeselandia.com.
2: back to um some of those politicians <laughs> you you made a point of saying that the the 27 politicians who had written this um you know letter supporting the distillery uh, you know lobby and the and the beer lobby um that, that they also tended to be climate change deniers funnily enough um Which it does surprise me if there are Democrats in there. I mean, I think the Democrats are pretty much on board with climate science. But but why did why did you feel like that was a relevant um, comment to make about these politicians?
3: Yeah. So I think their their argument um, around the the science not being around there not being a preponderance of, of evidence and the science not being certain around. The alcohol recommendation is really reflective of this, like, long industry tactic to dismiss um, established science on the grounds that there isn't enough evidence to draw a conclusion. Um, and there's a super good uh, book on this, um, "The Merchants of Doubt" by uh, the historian Naomi Oreskes, where she really like traces out this history starting with the tobacco industry, um, also used by uh, fossil fuel companies um, to to all make this similar argument um, that the the science is uncertain, um, and so she says that that they're weaponizing doubt um, and uh, exaggerating scientific uncertainty, which is you know a normal part of the scientific process. Um, yeah. So and then and then you see these politicians that have like a history of um, downplaying climate science, do the exact same thing for nutrition science. Um, the ones that I pointed out were representative Andy Harris and representative Doug LaMalfa, who have both dispelled um, climate science using a similar argument.
2: And what states do they hail from? I recognize the names, but I can't remember where they're from. Um, I put you on the spot. Never Gosh, mind. I'm
3: like too. Um, <laughs> Don't worry about it. Uh, Andy Harris is is um, he's a Republican from Maryland, and then oh. um, Doug Lamoffa is a Republican from California.
2: Right, I thought so, yeah. Anyway, interesting. I I, I think it's great that you bring up <clears throat> the issue of the, the tobacco playbook. Um, because that really has it is kind of a textbook case of how, uh, you know, people can obfuscate and confuse and render opaque things which normally should be quite clear. I mean, science is never to my knowledge. I'm not a scientist, but I'm going to guess science is constantly evolving as we learn more. And it must evolve. We can't just put our foot down and say, well, this is the only way that you can interpret you know this set of data um and and we can't possibly subject that to any other change or any other scrutiny so you know it's 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 good to remember that this is this is a, a um an industry tactic uh that the tobacco industry especially um you know pioneered but has been adopted by so many other industries uh including the sugar industry um you know salt you know, anything climate science yeah absolutely
3: it. and it's also sort of funny that you know andy harris and um representative andy harris and representative doug lamoffa would would think themselves in a position to comment on the science um having you know no scientific background along with the other <laughs> thank politicians
2: you. <laughs> thank you very much for me i love that <laughs> So, you know, one of the things I did find curious in your story was you cited one member of the committee, a woman named Dr. Elizabeth Mayer Davis, um, who uh, was one of the few members not nominated by an industry group. And yet, strangely enough, she did not push back on the failure to carry forward updated recommendations on the sugar and alcohol consumption. And she also Disavowed industry influence on the final guidelines when, as you clearly state, the industry has nominated nine out of the 20 committee members. So what, what made you, what, what do you, you know, what, first of all, what organization was she from? I've forgotten, but what made you think, or, or you know, why, why would she take that position? I guess is what I'm asking. Like, why wouldn't she push back when mm-hmm. she knows that these things are really wrong?
3: Hmm. Yeah. So, um, so she's at um, University of North Carolina, uh, Chapel Hill, and um, she is. Um, you know, I think that she was speaking to her experience on the committee, which um, it's interesting. I, I, you know, Sarah Reinhart also said that the committee's process is a rigorous process. That they did come out with a a really extensive, um, eight hundred thirty five page report, and that followed scientific processes. Um, So I think that it's curious because I think that 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 actual process is rigorous. Um, I do wonder, you know, obviously, the the industry wouldn't be nominating committee members if they didn't think they would get something out of it. Of course. Um, But I I do. um, I do understand her point there. Um, And then but she she was disappointed by the fact that the alcohol and sugar re- recommendations, didn't make it into the final report, um, and she stood by the committee's recommendations, um, and she did say that, um, the, 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 I guess the one good thing is that they were still recommending less alcohol and, and sugar. less sugar.
2: And so, so in so other that, words, mm-hmm. they, they hadn't completely thrown the baby out with the bathwater on that. <laughs> yeah. They were they were still recommending a low a lower consumption than in previous decades, um, even though it didn't go as far as she would have liked it to go. Yeah, exactly. But I, I just thought it was mm-hmm. I thought it was fascinating that she did I would have pushed back really hard on that, but you know, because those those are especially the sugar thing. I mean, the science around sugar has become so clear. Again, ever-evolving, but so clear uh, that it is so detrimental to human health and that our sugar consumption is, is clearly out of control in this country. I mean, you know, our dependence on soda the amount of sugar that's in all processed foods. Anybody who looks at their labels knows that, you know, you look at your food labels and I must say, I never go shopping. I mean, I rarely buy anything that comes in a jar or a box, but you know, when I do believe you me, I'm looking to see (laughs) what's, what else is in there. I mean, even when I buy a jar of peanuts, You know, it's like a lot of times your peanuts have been treated with sugar, with salt, with MH, uh, with um, whatever MSG uh, and a host of other, you know, chemical compounds that enhance the flavor and make them more snackable. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> you know, something you want to eat 10 times more than you actually need to eat <laughs> anyway. oh, exact, exactly <laughs> exactly yeah. um so the other thing that you mentioned in the article is an organization called ILSI which got a big expose in the times about a year and a half ago and I think I interviewed the author of that that article as well and um and one of their members uh uh the role of of their one of you know one of their members is also in the Trump administration as USDA's acting chief scientist, um, and I, I just you know can you just remind people of what the ILSI is, and sort of ha- what their role has been in terms of um, kind of a shadowy group that has a lot to say about American nutrition but doesn't have a big <laughs> footprint.
3: Yeah. Um... So, uh, yeah, and, and then that acronym stands for the International Life Sciences Institute. Um, and I would recommend that people go to that New York Times article, because I think that really laid out clearly um, uh, their their role in shaping food policy throughout their, throughout the world. Um, and then the funding that they received from corporate food industry groups and agribusiness groups, um, including DuPont and Pepsi. General Mills, and then until very recently, Coca Cola. Coca Cola um, just split from from and I think, you know, I think that's probably because um, they they've been questioned more, and I think people have been really, uh, you know, especially after that expose, people have been noticing and acknowledging that this this is a shadow pro-sugar industry group. Um, Yeah, and then. there it was. So, uh, Shabanda Jacobs Young, uh, the chief scientist in the Trump administration's USDA, um, was also a, a government liaison for ILSE's Board of Trustees. Um, yeah, and then also half the participants on the advisory committee had ties to Ilse.
2: Um that's disturbing, <laughs> yeah so so we had we had nine, let's review. we had nine people who were nominated by various corporate factions, then we have another eleven people um who may or may not be independent from ilsi uh can you give us a little you know clearer picture of what that influence might might have been?
3: yeah, that's exactly right, I mean I think well, the tricky thing is I. I can't really, beyond that, those connections, um, it's not clear how, how, what role that influence may have played, if it, if it did play a role at all. So, um, yeah, I think that, I, yeah, I think that this reporting was looking mostly at um, areas that the process is susceptible to corporate influence, but, you know, I, I would be curious to find more answers in, as to how
2: Yes. Well, what that I'd like be. to see is, is, you know, scientists, and I know it's really hard to find them. I mean, I remember back in the day, I used to do publicity for books. And I, I remember doing publicity for a fantastic book called University Inc., um, which was, I can, now cannot remember the name of the author. Very, very bright, very young woman. And um, she... Made a very compelling case about how much industry influences uh, even the best intended uh, scientists in throughout the university system in our country and probably around the world, um, because uh, you know colleges and universities can't possibly fund uh, as much research as these scientists want to pursue. And so they are, of course, ever obliged to f- to look for grants and and money from various individuals. Uh, and entities, and those are often corporations, which then skew the science the way that they want them to. So, um, you know, the this this whole uh, sort of difficulty in in identifying someone who is sort of industry free or or you know really literally a free thinker or somebody who isn't beholden in some way to some corporate entity is 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 a challenge. But I think it's it's kind of where we got to go with this because otherwise we'll never get away from uh, from having guidelines like this. Um, you know that, yes. that ignore ignore the important things like last the last guidelines when they when they linked diet with climate change and when they said that the plant based diet was recommended and you know somehow of course under the Trump administration you would expect that that would be ignored, um, but now that we have established that these guidelines are in many ways a reflection of a food industry's wet dream, um, what can be done to alter this trajectory? Is there a way do you think to find? Um, less influenced, uh, you know, scientists to work on the advisory committee.
3: Yeah, um, and just also related to the, the last point you made, I think because I think it's it's true that it's really hard to find um, scientists without industry connections, um, and that's partially because, um, and this is something that um, Ashka Nike at Corporate Accountability talked to me about. Um, it's hard to find funding for, um, many people that, that work in the field of nutrition science that is outside of corporate funding sources. Um, and then there's also, um, a lot of, uh, peer reviewed studies too that, that receive corporate funding. Um, and she pointed out, um, Nike pointed out that, uh, that even, um, the journal it's a peer-reviewed journal, um, Nutrition Reviews. Um, it's uh, published by Oxford University Press and LC. Um So <laughs> it just there's there's Ouch. a very it's it's a problem. The problem with the dietary guidelines extends so far beyond the dietary guidelines to 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 a certain extent to the field of dietary science as well. Um, although there's also really rigorous science, of course, being done within this field, but there. She So she recommended that um, there be more transparency um, within the broader field, too, about, about uh, corporate funding and, and more resources um, outside of corporate funding pools. And then um, uh, she also recommended um, prohibiting trade and industry groups from nominating participants to the advisory committee um, and creating more... Yeah, and creating more transparency around the committee members' um, industry ties, um, and then ensuring that um, the officials at HHS and USDA also don't have industry ties, um, which is looking more promising now.
2: Well, a little bit, yeah, a little bit. A little yeah. bit. Um, I, I want to just say that that um, you know Marion Nessel, who is a total hero of mine. I absolutely love the woman. But one of the things that she and she did this for a while on her blog, Food Politics, um, she was identifying the corporate funding in any number of like every study that came across her desk. She would look at who was funding it and she would out the ones that were funded by Coke or Pepsi or, you know, the corn lobby or, you know, whoever. I mean, you know, soy lobby, all of these big, you know, food industry groups or, or Archer Daniel Midland or something like that. I mean, she she has been absolutely um, essential in in exposing some of that, uh, how that corporate money influences uh, what we see as science um, down the down the road in, the, in these you know, peer-reviewed journals and peer-reviewed papers. I mean, it's it's sort of inescapable. So <clears throat> anyway, I guess I guess that's it. I don't want to keep you too much longer, and we're almost at the 40-minute mark, and I know people lose interest very quickly <laughs> after 30 minutes. So, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, thank you so much. <laughs> this was really, really interesting. Thanks for writing such a great article, and I look forward to reading more of your work. Uh, you know, keep me posted on what you're doing, and I hope you'll come back sometime.
3: Oh, amazing. Thank you so much for having me. I love chatting with you
2: um, and great. look forward to continuing to tune in. Okay, honey. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening, folks. Thank you to my sponsor. And as always, thank you to my wonderful engineer, uh, Amanda, in this case, and we'll see you next week, folks. Thanks for listening. Bye-bye. What Doesn't Kill You is powered by Simplecast.